Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's Dead Pundit Society. A-side, I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And joining me for today's program, I have the unforgettable, the the very busy, uh, the highly logical Ben Burgess joining me on the program. Ben is the author of the book that is exploding out there. It seems like everyone has picked up a copy. That book is called Give Him an Argument. It's out from Zero Books just about a couple of months ago. If you don't have a copy, you should definitely pick one up, and we're going to convince you to do that over the course of the next episode. Ben also has a weekly segment on The Michael Brooks Show. Michael Brooks, former guest, friend of the show. You guys should check that out as well. He's got a YouTube channel and a Patreon that he has just started for that YouTube channel. So people should support this. I'm going to convince you over the course of the next hour that reclaiming logic for the left is a really important project. Ben, how you doing? Thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm good. Good to be here. It's uh, definitely uh, definitely one of my uh, my favorite uh, Neo Catscape podcasts. <laughs> no, no, uh, no. I'm not going to give you an argument about that. That's just <laughs> that's just a fact. Those are facts, and they don't care about your feelings, Ben. That's right. That's right. So, did I sum it up correctly? Is this part yeah. of your project? Are you trying to reclaim logic for the left? Let's talk a little bit about the impetus for the book. You're clearly uh, a professor of logic. You teach formal elementary logic and critical thinking, critical reasoning mm-hmm. types of classes. You've got some really in- a couple interesting anecdotes that start off your book. Maybe kind of recount those for the audience and, and give us a broader perspective as to why you thought a book like this was so necessary. Yeah, absolutely. So um, like you said, since I teach philosophy at Rutgers and um, my area of specialization uh, for my, my dissertation was had to do with logical paradoxes, and I teach both formal and informal logic classes. And one of the things I talk about at the very beginning of the book is the main informal logic class here at Rutgers is called Logic, Reasoning, and Persuasion. And a uh, you know a friend of mine is a grad student who's somebody who you know generally speaking I agree with about most things. You know, like she seems like a pretty solid you know Jacobin reading leftist. But was uh, was told uh, that she was going to be teaching for her you know TA assignment in the fall. She was going to be teaching this um, informal logic class, and she was a little bit confused about what it was that was covered in this class. And I said, "Well, you know, you can talk about logical fallacies, and you know whether because she was like a little drunk or she was being dramatic or whatever." You know, she said, "Oh, ugh." Right, you know that's that's how people turn into annoying libertarian boys, yeah, uh, yeah. and and I think that kind of that that gut reaction kind of sums up a phenomenon uh, in parts of the left right now, um, which is also you know like like I, I you know I, I like Chapo and I have no interest in policing what's a joke and what's not a joke and what the line is between the two. But there's a very persistent joke that has been part of that show since it started, which is this is this business about, you know, proving people wrong by their own logic and, you know, yeah, kind of yeah. rule. Using you know, facts all- and reason to own the libs and the, <laughs> and the, the, the socialist and the left and, and the rat, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so it seems like because there are so many people out there who – unironically talk like that and have this kind of vision of logic as this cudgel that they can use to beat the left with. 
you know, that, uh, you know, through the power of, you know, facts and logic, you know, that, uh, that they're going to, to destroy people and wreck them and, you know, and reduce them to quivering piles of urine and soiled garments, you know, on the floor. Uh, that's a direct quote, by the way. That is so for, for people who have not read quote. the book. That's a direct quote, and it's 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 fantastic, phenomenal. It really captures this kind of like faux aggro um, <laughs> kind of sense that these these logic pedants out there on the right and the alt right like to uh, like to embody. Yeah, so there's a lot of that out there, um, and I, I think it's become an increasingly common rhetorical posture for the right. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who maybe started out as like new atheists in uh, in the middows who um, who gravitated towards you know people like you know these maybe alt light figures since then and they they love that posture and a lot of people on the left have understandably I think overreacted to that and they've overreacted to that in a way where. Uh, it's not that they hate arguments or rationality. Everybody makes arguments, but they but they don't really like explicit talk about logic and about types of arguments and ways that arguments can go wrong because they've they associate uh, that rhetoric so much with these kind of you know basement dwelling libertarian uh, you know uh, pretentious logic trolls. And so really what I want to do with the book is to take back logic for the left in two senses. The most obvious one is showing what's wrong with a lot of the arguments made by the uh, facts and logic brigades. Yeah, the trouble is there is that it's it's actually not logic at all. That's really the problem, you know, is, is the, the – the, not only are people reacting viscerally against it, but what they claim to be this kind of like careful – and devastating, logical. Yeah, these no. kind of, it's just not logic at all. That that was the most. I think for me coming into this, someone who, you know, I still have PTSD about my like symbolic logic <laughs> class that I had to take. You know, second year in university. I think I got like a C, maybe. You know, which was one of the better grades I got that semester. I, I like to drink, Ben. I like. I still like to drink, but I, I like to drink a lot more in those days. So I, anyway, <laughs> I had the heebie-jeebies about this book, man. I'm not going to lie, but I was pleasantly surprised. Sorry to jump in there, but uh, no, continue. No, that's yeah. good. That's good. Well, you know, I, uh, I like to, uh, I like to drink too, but what's good is that usually <laughs> I, um, you know, like it's, it's been kind of funny actually that, you know, like oftentimes I'll look at YouTube comments, the times I've been on studio on uh, Michael Brooks and like I'll have like the majority report coffee cup and he'll be holding a beer and the YouTube commenters be like, man, Michael's drinking a lot of the show and be like, yeah, I guess people think that people are drinking coffee and the coffee cups, you know, like, yeah, but, yeah. But, straight yeah. whiskey. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Brooks is drinking straight liquor. I don't know. That's not true. That's 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 no, no. I, I actually offered. Let's start over. that rumor, though. That, yeah, uh, no. Yeah. It's actually exactly the opposite of the truth. I, 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 I always bring over like bottles of whiskey, you know, to uh, the studio when I come by, and everybody except for him has a glass. But <laughs> maybe, maybe uh, he, pref- maybe it's Apple Teenies that uh, that Mike that Michael prefers. Let's yeah. let's start that. Let's start that. No, that's instead. good. Actually, I like yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. Apple Teenies. Um, Brooks, if you're listening, I apologize, but damn it, that's funny. You got to admit that's funny. Anyway, so yeah, so you got these logic pedants who are using this kind of faux aggro, like hostile, aggressive measures. It's not even exactly logic to begin with. And so your book goes a long way in exposing that. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So 
one of the things I want to do is is just like that's kind of the easy part is just to so show like break down exactly what's wrong with uh, these arguments, which is usually a lot because and this is kind of a symptom of the fact that people overreact on the left uh, because it's actually not that hard to show that a lot of these are terrible arguments uh, and commit really obvious fallacies and things like that because nobody is really challenging on that, them on that level. So they don't really have to up their argument game very much. But then, and of course I also want to show that uh, we could make like good, solid, well thought out arguments for left-wing positions and that kind of goes with the the first part, although I guess it's that's the you know slightly more challenging and interesting half of the first part. But then the second sense in which I want to reclaim logic for the left is reclaiming the way of doing logic from the ridiculous agro logic pedants, right? So in other words, what those people really valorize is um, is making like snap judgments about what's wrong with an argument. You know, they're being able to like rattle off the names of a bunch of logical fallacies, you know, preferably in Latin, you know, so, you know, uh, and, and just show people like how you've got all this stuff memorized and you can just do it like that. And, you know, I mean, I guess that's impressive in a really stupid way, but, um, but that's not that useful, right? Because if you think that the, the point of these tools for analyzing arguments and classifying with things that can go wrong with, you know, with arguments, you know, the, in fact, a lot of the bad reaction, the overreaction on the left comes from the fact that people perceive it because this is how the, uh, this is how the logic trolls present it as if what like a logical fallacy is, is like a yellow card you could give out in a debate, right? <laughs> that this is like a, you know, that what this is, what these are, these are like some prissy and arbitrary set of rules they're like the Queensbury rules for gentlemanly debate or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's, it presents this kind of like, you know, this objective, this phony objective, sort of technocratic um, sense that like, oh, I'm just calling balls and strikes here. I just call it like I see it. Right. And it, and it, it sort of covers and buries uh, things over in an additional layer of ideology such that you can't really get to the actual arguments and the, the objections being being raised at hand. Um, anyway, you'll, yeah. I'm sure you'll you'll lay yeah. that out in the way it plays out in Ben Shapiro and Stefan Molyneux and all the rest of them. No, absolutely. And so if you think, OK, well, that's not the point of it. Then what is the point? Well, I'd say think that it's that what these are, are these are ways that we can go wrong in reasoning. And if you want to reason well, you should try to avoid them. But if you really want to want to do it well, then what you should do is not make these like, you know, quick, decisive snap judgments. What you should do is actually take your time and think about it and, you know, and, and just be careful about it. You know, see if like there's a way of interpreting it where it, it is, you know, where it's not actually going wrong this way. And that's much harder, but and it's much less like superficially impressive, but it's way more useful. And that's really what I want to push, you know, that the, the purpose of reasoning is not, you know, it's it's not like verbal combat, right? That's uh, it's uh, it's to make sure that you're actually getting things right. And what you're talking about, about the kind of pseudo technocratic sense that you get from it is also really important because these people we're talking about. They love to use the phrase like facts and logic, facts and logic. And the implication is always that that you can logically derive from the facts uh, the, con- you know, like moral and political conclusions, you know, that uh, that like all you need is some facts and some logical tools and you can use the second to derive from the first. 
you know, that we should all be libertarians or whatever, right? Uh, and the reason that that's wrong is really important because this is actually, I think, the overlap between what a lot of people who overreact to this stuff and kind of dislike explicit logic talk, like, are actually latching onto that's right, but also something that is a matter of pure logic, which is that you can't do that, right? You can't actually, uh, you can't reach normative conclusions, conclusions about what we should do, what would be good or bad, desirable or undesirable, from purely factual conclusions. That's a that's a fact value jump. That's actually a principle of reasoning that it's impossible to do that. And that's this is a really this is a really important point, I think, for a few reasons. But like you know, when Ben Shapiro says uh, facts don't care about your feelings. And of course, he's right. They don't. They also don't care about other facts, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, like the implication is that facts also aren't able to care about anything. Yeah. Because yeah, fa- yeah. Facts. Facts, you, you, facts unlike people don't care about anything. facts. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, exactly. Weird. Anyway, go you on. Know, Sorry. I just I no, can't no, no. shit, man. It kills but me. Absolutely. Right. You know, and, and but like people unlike facts care about things. And when we're reasoning about this stuff. You know, once we've decided what we care about, facts can be tremendously useful in helping us reason our way to figuring out how to achieve those goals. But facts can't tell us what to care about in and of themselves, right? You know, there's a difference between facts and values. So, like, if we decide that we care about closing the racial wealth gap, that we think that it's really important, you know, that... It's really, uh, it's really vital that we achieve this goal that uh, that there not be um, this economic inequality between white people and black people. Then at that point, if we're having like a Adolf Reed versus Ta-Nehisi Coates kind of debate about how to do it, then facts can be very relevant because we can, for example, look at past instances in which um, you know universal social programs have been used, or which maybe reparations have been handed out to some group. And like we can, you know, we could definitely use those facts, you know, marshal them as part of some argument about which one of these strategies is better. Uh, But there's no uh, there's no fact that's going to tell us whether this is a goal we should have in the first place. Right, right, right. Right on. I want to dig into this a little bit, but let's let's pull back for a second. And I want to spell this out for the audience, particularly well, almost exclusively for the ones who haven't read the book, because if you've read the book at this point, you already know this. Uh, But you can certainly elaborate on this for those who have and uh, spell it out uh, carefully for those who haven't yet. Again, buy the damn book. It's super readable. It's cheap. It's affordable. Uh, get the book. Anyway, if you, ha- if you haven't read it yet, let's talk about what this book is not arguing. And that, this is the part that I really appreciate because you're not likely to find a book that's really serious about logic in, in, in this, in this way, uh, whilst at the same time, um, not making the two arguments that I'm going to ask you to, to spell out. Sure. You're categorically not making an argument about civility or you're not <laughs> grounding or basing uh, the, the kind of uh, – it doesn't – it doesn't, you know, uh, the, the validity, the, the, uh, the import of your argument doesn't rise or, or, or fall based on That's any right. kind of civility argument. It's, uh, you can make one, but it's tangential. Uh, and, and additionally, you're not sort of valorizing logic in the in the way that liberal this kind of like liberal arg- uh, argumentation, which is a it's a correlate of the civility argument, but it's it's one that suggests that if we all just sit down and 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 you know hash things out, we can come to some kind of consensus. And that and in fact, maybe even going further, maybe that's actually how the world works, right? That's the liberal model of the world 
that we yeah. all sort of come together and in the marketplace of ideas, we, you know, marshal facts and reason and eventually we all come to some kind of conclusion. And when things go off the rails, it's because we're not doing that, right? There was a whole host of, you know, opinion pieces and garbage blogs that appeared, you know, when Trump was elected that suggested that type, that type of thing. So you're not making those two arguments. Maybe spell that out a little bit for us because this is the part of the, about the book I really appreciated the most. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the civility thing is important, not because I necessarily go along with all of the sort of left um, anti-civility uh, stuff that's out there. Like I, I, I kind of, you know, I'm, I think some of that stuff can maybe bend the stick a little bit too far in the other direction and, uh, and kind of make a virtue of just like being an asshole all the time in a way that doesn't necessarily always serve good tactical or strategic purposes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but that's not, uh, but I think the most important point about civility is that like, whatever you think about that and, you know, whatever, like I, um, you know, I mean, I think that I always say that like one of the points of this is that it's important that the, you know, one of the reasons that's so important for the left to care about arguments is that um, it's important that, you know, as we push back against the right, our only tools not be mockery and moral condemnation, because if they are, then those are the tools that we turn on each other when we have internal disagreements, and that's very bad and very alienating and very counterproductive. But whenever I say that, I always emphasize that it's not like I'm against... Um, it's not like I don't think there's anything that deserves to be morally condemned. Obviously, there are lots of things that do. And I'm not against mockery. I don't think I don't know how you're supposed to get through the day if you can't mock things. But uh, but the important point is that whatever you think about mockery and civility and all of that stuff, you know, I've already admitted to serially associating with Michael Brooks. So I mean, I'm clearly not anti-mockery. Uh, <laughs> and none of that has anything to do with what the book's about. Right. It's a separate it's a separate subject. We can have that discussion, but your book doesn't sort of rise or fall on that on that particular argument. Exactly. Where you stand on that. You can remain agnostic about it, to put it in a, in a word. Absolutely. Yeah, because because yeah. it's not. Uh, and this gets back to the point about how it's important to correct this impression that like what logic is about. Right. What the you know, what these sort of rules for good reasoning and detecting bad reasoning are all about is like what these are. These are like, you know. They, you know, that yellow cards you give out in a debate conception of logical fallacies. That's not that's not it at all. Right. Those those are those are just the sort of the question of politeness and the question of reasoning. Well, are two totally separate subjects. And I think that the the fact that people tend to equate them or at least very closely associate them is a major source of uh, left wing resistance to uh, logic talk. Uh, so yeah, I, I think you could remain, you could have any position or just be agnostic about the civility stuff and still go along with all the arguments of the book. Uh, as, and it's, and similarly, and even more importantly, right. But it's related, right. Cause the people, cause the, you know, the sort of liberal civility scolds are the people who have this uh, conception on uh, the book. I mentioned, uh, Leibniz who says that there'll be a point when, um, you know, the development of symbolic logic and mathematics and all that stuff, when in the future philosophers won't have to dispute anymore. They could just sit down together and say, let us calculate, uh, you know, which really is the like kind of West Wing, Nate Silver kind of view of the world. Wet dream, my friend. 
Yeah, that, that's <laughs> yeah. the sound of Nate Silver pleasuring himself uh, to the thought of Leibnizian <laughs> utopia. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, no, God, I'm like... sorry for putting that image in all your heads. I'm going go, to go puke now. Moving along from Nate Silver. Uh, Matt, yeah, anyway. well, I have a uh, – yeah, uh, and I have more vivid image in my, uh, in my head because I actually went to high school with him. But, uh... <laughs> You're still thinking about it. I apologize doubly. Uh, yeah, so so the idea that Leibniz and his kind of uh, philosopher king utopia, technocratic utopia, maybe put yeah. a technocratic spin on like Plato's philosopher king, you know, sort of society – um, that's the idea. And, and in, in a sense, you know, these liberals are, are under the kind of illusion that that's more or less how society functions today. And that's, that's also categorically not the kind of arguments that you're, you're no, making here. No, absolutely not. I look, I think that there's no, you know, there's no moral argument that anybody could ever make to Jeff Bezos to like make him give, you know, give his money away or reform the conditions at the warehouses or anything like that. Uh, this is achieving even the social democratic basics, much less anything that's going to go beyond that is involves struggle, right? Political struggle, because not all, not all disagreements arise from somebody like missing something in reasoning. In fact, the most important political disagreements arise from people caring about different things, which ultimately, you know, as, as a Marxist, I think ultimately gets down in the most important cases to divergent economic interests. So uh, we so in order to achieve any of the things that we care about as leftists, uh, what we you know what we need to do is to mobilize uh, the majority of the population and the basis of their interests against the uh, the minority whose class interests diverge from that and you know fight it out politically. So absolutely now so you might say, oh okay well if you're saying we can't convince the other side and this is often something I've run into, that people will think, oh, you're pushing the value of making better arguments or learning more about arguments. So you think we can win with arguments? It's like, no, no. Uh, like in the sense that you're applying, absolutely not. You know, that obviously, you know, we're not going to get, you know, <laughs> Medicare for all, much less, you know, much less socialized, you know, the means of production uh, through through making really good arguments for it. That's not the point at all. But the point is that that making better arguments is one thing, not the only thing, not by any stretch of the imagination the only thing, but it's a thing that's going to be helpful to us for various reasons. Uh, and one of those is that, you know, it's not a matter of convincing, you know, the 1%. Um, and the fact that people would even frame it in that way I think kind of tells you something about how much some people have lost track of just how much of an uphill battle we're facing. You know, it's because like before, you know, what we need to do is convince as many working class people as possible. And that that itself is hard enough. Right. You know, that's so. So what we're at the point like of engaging uh, with the right or, you know, people to our right isn't, you know, it's not to convince them right like you know we so we put out a video at uh, zero books uh baiting ben shapiro to uh to do a public debate the idea being that he's you know that he uh, you know that he thinks he's always uh he's always posted youtube clips of himself debating 19 year olds <laughs> yeah you know right. so uh owning the university know, students yeah yeah exactly uh so you know it seems a little bit much to say that you know i'd be beneath his uh, his attention but uh 
But like, if that ever happened, right? Or like times when I actually have debated right wingers or whatever, the point is not to convince the other person on the stage, right? That's just realistically not going to happen. Uh, the point is not even to convince their most hardcore fans. The point is to convince whatever winnable people might be watching. And if we just kind of decide in advance that nobody, you know, that like none of them are are persuadable, then that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's also really, and again, I already kind of mentioned this, but it, I think maybe it's, it's worth underlining the point that uh, it's also important because if we get a little bit too used to um, only processing political disagreement, you know, even if it's just political disagreement with the right through um, through condemnation and mockery and privilege checking and all that stuff, then um, then when we have when disagreements arise on the left, as has happened approximately every fifteen minutes since the French Revolution, uh, then we seven are minutes, going, seven minutes, yeah, yeah seven yeah. minutes. It's, it's sex right. and uh, a disagreement on the left every or every seven <laughs> okay, seconds, yeah, yeah, seven yeah, seconds. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Then those are the tools we're going to turn on each other. And, you know, like that's that's why like left Twitter is intolerable. And um, and, yeah. you know, I wish it was just Twitter. Yeah. And that point is so important. I mean, I was I was going to I was hoping you're going to get there because that that point isn't spelled out as uh, intent intensely in the book. Uh, and, and, and it shouldn't be because this is this is inside baseball, you know, intra left kind of stuff. Uh, but but this is the argument that's near and dear to my heart. This is something I've been pursuing on DPS since day one. You know that 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 sense that when we when we lose the ability to uh, come up with compelling and rigorous arguments for the positions that we hold or don't hold, it's not necessarily about convincing you know our opposition as much as it is you know being internally coherent and consistent such that we can engage with other leftists in an honest and productive sort of way. It's kind of like Freud's, you know, Freud's uh, classic thesis or whatever from civilization is discontents, right? Colonialism was an expression of barbarism um, or sorry, the, 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 the first world war was, was kind of like, you know, barbarism abroad and colonialism uh, always comes home, right? Coming yeah. home in terms of slaughtering each other and, you know, these mechanized uh, mass casualties faced during World War One, And so, you know, it's the same thing. You know, you, it, it, the dirtbag left spends every waking fucking second, as we said, every seven seconds, you know, owning the libs on Twitter in 2015, 2016, and, get, you know, having really ugly kind of um, dispositional debates, whatever. It was only a matter of time before that was going to be unleashed inside the left itself. And I think yeah. the worst of that is past. Thankfully, as these things, these mm -hmm. cycles kind of ebb and flow, but this is still a really important uh, uh, takeaway. So I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're writing about that. Uh, yeah. I mean, the way it hasn't been that many months since, um, since there were like 10,000 people uh, who, uh, who had somehow convinced themselves that Barbara Ehrenreich was like a racist oh, uh, imperialist. Oh, yeah. You know, like, so yeah. that was something that just happened, just happened this year. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I always I always think of uh, there's a time I remember when I was like a teenager, when um, some friends of my parents were going away for the weekend, and they had like they had like I think they had like three dogs or something, and so all three dogs were like staying at our house for the weekend, and so their three dogs and our two dogs did what like groups of dogs will do, and they kind of instantly formed into a pack, and they were like romping <laughs> around the house barking at things. 
And I remember there's a point when all five dogs, including our two, were, were barking at the cat. And like, you see this cat every day, right? You know, like, it's just that, like, once the five dogs sort of form a, a pack mind, you know? Like, I got to wonder, Ben, you almost lost me there for a second. I was like, where in the fuck is he going with this story? But you brought it home. So, you know, uh, bravo. It's, it's, that was good. And, yeah. And that's nice all little I analogy. Think, <laughs> that's all I could think about when I saw that, like, all these, you know, people who are, like, leftists who are, like, yelling at Barbara Ehrenreich, you know, because because like they're suddenly they suddenly think that she thinks these things that they've known for decades that she doesn't think yeah right yeah it's bizarre yeah she she was the cat yeah same cat (laughs) same fucking cat man anyway (laughs) hey everybody pardon the interruption but this is the part of the show where i give you an argument to become a patron of dead punnett society podcast Our expansion into video and website territory is well underway. We have two YouTube videos out. The third video will be appearing at the end of this week. The website is up and live. It's still somewhat under construction. My web development skills are, let's say, not great, but they're improving rapidly. And we're going to feature articles on deadpundits.com starting next week. But we can't do this without your generous support. We do this thanks to our patrons, past and present. So if you like Dead Punnett Society, if you think that our politics uh, align with your own, if you'd like to see them in the world blasted out there into the mainstream, please consider becoming a patron of DPS Media. You can do that at patreon.com slash deadpundits. Check out all of the generous rewards that we have there. Prime among those rewards, of course, is access to our weekly B-sides, which are bonus episodes that are available to patrons only. The B-Side with Ben Burgess will be dropping tomorrow. That's Friday. We're going to be going in-depth about the topics that you're hearing on the A-Side. We like to give people the inside baseball on the B-Sides. We like to take our hair down, if you will, and get pretty serious in terms of the theory and the strategy and the history because our patrons are the ones who are ready for the big league discussions, if you know what I'm saying. Anyway, we need a large, capacious well-funded, well-resourced socialist media ecosystem if we're going to face down the challenges presented to us by our political moment. Uh, Bernie Sanders is outlining democratic socialism in his own way. We need actual socialists in the mainstream making these arguments. We can't leave it up to Vox or MSNBC or Vice to do it for us. The only way to do that is to be well-resourced. And unfortunately, we don't have the millionaires and billionaires lining up to donate to our cause. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and donate if you are financially able to do so. Keep this free for the masses and expand it into the mainstream. All right. Enjoy the rest of the interview with Ben Burgess. So I think we've, we've spelled out pretty well here uh, comprehensively what this book is not doing. And we've, you've made a, a really successful argument, I think, in terms of uh, you know telling us why you think this stuff is important, um, not only for... I, I, let me let me die. I also don't want to. I don't want to undersell the possibility that people from the other side can be persuaded. I, I, I don't. I don't want to leave that out either. Because I mean, I think that you know, it's that that's not the the uh, intention. But there's no doubt that all of us used to hold ideas and opinions that were perhaps even antithetical to the ones that we hold now. Yeah. So to suggest that that that's impossible would be to look at our own personal development as as an impossibility, which you know. We live, which is, of course, it has. Which is always absolutely, and like, and this is always really weird because, like, I find so many people uh, who will make these weird like arguments against making arguments that like no, like nobody who thinks X could possibly be persuadable, 
as if there weren't like legions of people who were like libertarians when they were 25, you know, or, you know, <laughs> like, you know, social Democrats or socialists now, of course there are, right. You know, like that's uh, like, they're like s- some of the people who I find making these are these like weird, like claims that like arguments never convince anybody. So you shouldn't bother, you know, I'm like, wait a second, dude, you were, you know, you were raised in an evangelical Christian family, you became an atheist when you were a teenager. You were like a regular MSNBC liberal until 2016. <laughs> you know, then you were yeah. like a Bernie crack. You joined the DSA and now you've drifted like halfway to Maoism, you know, like yeah. and you're the one who's telling me that nobody ever changes their minds. So we shouldn't bother. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, 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 it's ludicrous. There's a certain kind of like irony poisoning, I think out there that we, we've all experienced where it's like, Oh, come on, man. Don't, don't even buy. And some of the people who I really actually love and adore, uh, out there, friends of mine, even who who will kind of take this up, like ah, don't even bother, don't even bother. Like, what are you doing? What what do you you know? What do you think you're going to achieve? And it's like, yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe you'd be like, uh, you know, running around on, you know, uh, whatever, Catholic mission trips, converting gays in, uh, you know, Mozambique or something like that. You know, if 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 fundamental ideological change was actually impossible, because that's where many of these people were, you know, in their in their teens or whatever. Uh, have you. So I just wanted to put that out there because I think that's a really yeah. important thing. And, I, you know, I've I've kind of counseled people on that in, in, in the past to say, like, look, like. Don't bother. But that's more just kind of like a sanity point, right? Like at some point you have to determine for yourself what's worth it. No, absolutely. Like, and I I do say several times in the book, I'm not, I'm not counseling anybody to like pour all their time and energy into any particular argument that comes up, right? Like, obviously you need to pick your battles, you know, like not everything is equally worth their time. Like I have, I mean, you know, I used to, you know, I have a, extremely conservative Texan mother-in-law that like I used to get into it about with like, you know, cause you know, she would, you know, she would like post things in Facebook comments and stuff, uh, which is hilarious too. Cause like who I'm friends with on there. So like, you know, my like Fox news watching Texan uh, mother-in-law has like had political arguments on my Facebook with Nathan Robinson and people like that. But uh, <laughs> you know, she's the, she's the energizer bunny, right. You know, like nothing will ever like, slow her down in, in this and you know and at a certain point it's like okay both for the sake of family harmony and like just yeah sanity right you know like i can't like engage with this forever and uh, and you know and, and of course people have to make those decisions all the time right like you have i mean i'm not i mean i i would i would feel pretty bad if the effect of my book were to tell people to be even more online than they already are <laughs> i don't know if that's possible i feel like we're kind of like living through this post debate moment where it's yeah. almost like people are anti-engagement in any way, like positive, negative, neutral, even just kind of, you know, just giving sort of general feedback on a, on a topic or a thought. I find that, you know, I've never had so little engagement in my social media uh, sphere as I do today. You know, I mean, yeah, even as I'm promoting the show, I'm on the official DPS account on Twitter or Facebook or what have you. It's just people are really allergic to this stuff. And so, I think you're not wrong, and we'll launch into the to the meat of the book here. You're not wrong to suggest that the Stephen Molyneux and the Ben Shapiro's and the Stephen Crowders have really poisoned the well when it comes to anybody even wanting to to think about entering that realm of like debate and discussion and like rigorous thinking and communication with other people. Uh, you know what was it? Was Sartre who said, you know, other you know, hell is other people, yeah. or whatever, <laughs> right? And you give me that. That's a there's a deep existential meaning there, but aside from that, like it's this, this, yeah, right. You encounter other people who have other ideas and other thoughts in their heads. And we have to find a way 
to, to work and, and speak and talk with one another if we are going to organize together collectively. Um, this yeah. Is, this is really important stuff. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's also really, um, really dangerous because I know this is like a, uh, you know, in a way it's a slightly off-brand thing for a radical leftist to, you know, worry about. But, like, just the way that, like, more than ever, like 2019, more than 2016, much less before that, we are able to just segment ourselves into like these increasingly self-selected media bubbles, right? You know, like, like if, like even, even at, like as a socialist, right? Like if I, if I want to, I can, I never have to, I could have a very full media diet where I never read or consumed everything to the right of like, you know, the majority report at the outside. Yeah, and, and we therefore lose the ability not only to to grapple with other people, to have a tolerance for other ideas, but also to to justify our own positions against people who don't already agree with us. Echo chambers are really ugly and dangerous things. Even I think the echo chamber is getting bigger now, uh, yeah. but I, I still think it's a bit of an echo chamber. I think, Democrat, I think the Democratic Socialist left is still nonetheless an echo chamber. It just it's just getting bigger, uh, absolutely. And so it doesn't feel as much like an echo chamber. It feels like our our influence can be somewhat outsized. Than it is when you get these kind of like very ultra left arguments, which put people, you know, which put our demands and our strategies way, way, way the fuck out ahead of the everyday average consciousness in, yeah. in broader society, which is a really dangerous thing. But let's launch in. Uh, let's let's jump in Absolutely, here in the in, uh, in a twenty. We got twenty minutes or so left here in the A side. Yeah. Let's give let's give them a preview of the arguments and the thesis of the book, the way you kind of go through piece by piece, a couple of chapters uh, with all interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Ben Shapiro chapter. Cause this is what uh, a lot of people will be, have been uh, subjected to when they think about logic <laughs> and they get that, that, that shudder down their spine, yeah, yeah. They just want to like run away and projectile vomit at the same time. Uh, why, why did you take on Ben Shapiro in this way? I mean, it seems, it seems obvious, right? He seems like an obvious target, but uh, justify that for us. Yeah, I mean, I think Ben Shapiro is probably just the most prominent representative of the um, of the right wing use of the at least rhetorical posture of being very logical, and uh, because of the sort of and also because of the kind of crass way that he does it, he's like he's a good foil to think a little bit harder about like issues like what's the relationship between uh, facts and values, what's the relationship between, you know, logic and emotion. You know, Star Trek has, uh, has given generations of television viewers the very, the very mistaken idea that there's some sort of conflict between, you know, emotionally carried about things and, some, and something called logic, you know, whatever, you know, vaguely people understand that to be. And he really taps into that, right? Facts don't care about your feelings, and so, and it's, it's, and people really believe the hype, right? Like in, um, and it's, it's interesting how much I think people who don't even agree with him, uh, believe his hype, like, uh, the, you know, the New York times, you know, which is obviously the, the house organ of, of a certain kind of like moderate technocratic liberalism, uh, ran a, a embarrassing story about him called the cool kids philosopher uh where they just referred to him as the destroyer of weak arguments uh this guy. And, uh, destroyer of weak university students like second year you know uh, philosophy majors anyway yeah yeah totally and like and, and the people yeah with very few exceptions 
Like, when you see somebody on Ben Shapiro's YouTube channel arguing with Ben Shapiro, it's some, like, 20-year-old who is, like, mad enough about what they're talking to him about, that they're willing to overcome their nervousness and, like, ask a question at a public event for the first time in their lives. You know? Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah their uh, voice is shaking. They're getting emotional because they're so angry and viscerally just, you know, deterred by this 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 piece of shit standing in front of them, you know, and Ben Shapiro and his sniveling voice and his <laughs> five foot two stature. Anyway, uh, yeah. so, so like the, the walk us through. There's a really uh, interesting example that you make and, and you kind of carve out, dare I say it, a third way uh, <laughs> from 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 the kind of objections and debates as they as they typically play out here. Ben Shapiro at an event was confronted by a woman who was challenging him on his really transphobic and disgusting remarks, uh, mm-hmm. like politically speaking, disgusting. I mean, logically they were incoherent, but the you reveal that perhaps the logic or the tactics or strategies pursued by the left in this regard is oftentimes unnecessarily weak, and it gives way too much ground uh, to the far right in these hateful transphobic forces. You give us a, a way of getting around that, resisting that. Yeah, Spell absolutely. That so, so in um, this is actually funny because. In that New York Times article I just mentioned where they refer to him as the destroyer of weak arguments, uh, this is the only weak argument they give an example of him destroying, and his destruction is not very impressive. So he, uh, what happens is this 22-year-old girl at an event says, you know, challenges his position on uh, trans issues, which is that, you know, um, you know, trans woman is... Uh, is, you know, is, is just a man in a dress and you should absolutely not refer to that person, you know, by the pronoun they want to be referred to by and all this stuff. Uh, and uh, so she's like trying to object to this position. And he says, well, how old are you? And she says, 22. And he said, oh, well, could you just identify as being 60? And then she kind of stumbles for a second because she doesn't, you know, she doesn't do this every day like he does. And she's not sure what to say takes her a second to collect her thoughts, which, by the way, does go back to the larger one of the larger themes of the book about what good reasoning is and isn't. Because if if we actually cared about like carefully thinking through the issue, if that was a goal that he had, what he would do is he'd give her a second to collect her thoughts, and then they could kind of explore some you know what the analogies really are or aren't between the things. But what he does is fluster her and then kind of bulldoze over her to like reiterate his original point. But then you think, okay, well, is that a good analogy? And this is a place where, as you said, I do think that the left often, you know, has the right conclusion, but um, makes the wrong argument for it. So oftentimes the argument that I increasingly see, not universally, like uh, ContraPoints is a very famous uh, trans YouTuber, and I, I know she's explicitly disowned this argument, but very often what I see people do in order to push back against the Ben Shapiro's because the Ben Shapiro's will just say, well, this is just science because, you know, people are either, you know, chromosomally male or female and, you know, you, you can't change, you know, the, uh, you know, you can't change your biology. So therefore the trans woman is just a man. Um, and people will try to push back against this in exactly the wrong way. And in a way, by the way, I see something very similar happening with abortion that, uh, people that the right winger will make a big deal about saying life begins at a conception. And then the pro-choice person will say, no, 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 you know, I don't think life begins at conception. I think it, believe, you know, it begins, you know, at some point later, which is 
I think what they're trying to say is right, but they're saying it wrong. Because, of course, uh, of course, as a biological issue, of course, that a fetus is alive, right? You know, that's that's not that's not interesting. The interesting question is whether they're the right the fetus, you know, the fetus at the point when it's a literally mindless collection of cells, you know, living cells is the right kind of entity to have moral rights at all. Right. Like that's a much better place to sort of stake your claim than trying to deny that it's alive or using the word life in this weird, fuzzy way, you know, that like you really mean like isn't a person or something like that. And something very similar is going on in the trans case, because when people react to this position that, you know, Ben the Ben Shapiro's the world say, look, what terms like man and woman refer to these have a biological meaning uh, they mean like a adult human being who has such and such biological sex. And therefore, if you don't want to use this in a different way, you're denying science. And what people try to do is they try to deny the premise, which I think is the wrong move. You shouldn't try to deny the premise. You should show that the conclusion doesn't follow from it. So because, of course, there is such a thing as biological sex. And the arguments that people make against it that I see a lot are very bad arguments and I think that the left isn't really doing itself any favors by embracing them because people will say things like, well, but wait a second. What about people who are born with such and such unusual chromosomal combinations such that they end up with some unusual combination of secondary sex characteristics so they don't cleanly fall into the biologically male or biologically female categories? Doesn't this show that that biological sex is just a myth, that there really is no biological sex distinction, and therefore the only way to use uh, gender vocabulary coherently is to refer to like gender expression and gender identity? And I think that's just wrong. Not, of course, that there aren't gray areas. Of course there are gray areas. But it's uh, it's just a mistake as a matter of logic to think that the existence of gray areas means that there's not a real distinction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I guess, you know, I guess about all of this, one could just say, because I want to get to this point you made about premises here, because I thought this point really illustrates the, the crux of your argument for someone like myself, who I look at the symbols and symbolic logic in my, my eye, I go cross-eyed. I'm not a quantitative kind of, uh, <laughs> uh, kind of person in that way. My brain sort of locks up like, you know, like gears in a clock that somebody threw sand in, uh, you know, so, but this is the real critical takeaway, I think, is that, is that logical sort of argumentation, and you're going to be able to spell this out much better than me, but see if I'm getting something, I get something close here. <laughs> Logical argumentation presupposes premises in a way that most political uh, and socially oriented discussions just simply cannot, and such that such that premises have to be sort of given and agreed upon going into a certain kind of logical proof in such a way that uh, your chapter on Ayn Rand really demolishes. I mean, it's uh, it's just not the case that these complex historical, normative, even ontological claims that w- are under constant contestation can can be encapsulated in the way that so-called logicians try to encapsulate them. That doesn't mean that they can't be uh, yeah. uh, captured via logic in the way that you uh, instruct us, but the way that people go about doing that is all wrong. Unpack that for the audience because yeah. that was a uh, hodgepodge coming out of my, uh, you know. No, that's, that's good. So what, what I think that what's going on here, or at least one of the things going on here, is that in ordinary reasoning and ordinary conversation, like we don't usually spell out like all – like 
obviously we make arguments, right? An argument is just any case where we're giving, you know, we're trying to get somebody to believe something. We're giving them reasons, but uh, not, but we don't usually spell out explicitly all of those premises in ordinary context because for one thing, we don't need to. Uh, we like lots of things really do go without saying, and it would just be annoying and pedantic to spell it all out. And also because we don't have that much time because we want to rhetorically package things well, and it would be really clunky to try to spell everything out or just because there's too much and you can't, right? But one of the, re- which is to my mind, one of the reasons why it's valuable to study these skills about uh, formal and informal logic to to try to learn um, to try to get into the practice of doing things like trying to reconstruct arguments and say okay if you know here's what they're explicitly saying but this would only follow if they're also assuming this other thing right so you spell out the unstated premises so like in the trans case the unstated premise you know the, the perfectly correct premise is that biological sex is a thing right in any other context. We wouldn't we wouldn't say that the existence of gray areas doesn't you know, like negates the existence of a real distinction or clear cases on both ends. We shouldn't say that here. That's the continuum fallacy. But you know whatever they're right about that. But then the unstated second premise is therefore this is the only reasonable way, or this is the only correct way uh, to um, to use gender language in every context. And of course that doesn't follow at all because you know that second premise is unreasonable. And to see why it's unreasonable. There's a trans philosophy professor named Sophie Grace uh, Chappelle, who's uh, who has this nice analogy about adoptive parents. You know, says that um, if um, that of course there is a purely biological way of using words like mother, father, and parent, but we also use it in this other context, right? And there are clearly there are clearly sentences in which context in which it makes sense to use the term in a purely biological way like you know the test has come back and you're not the father uh you know in that in that sentence right you know then of course we want to use it in the biological way but there are lots of other contexts in which only we would regard as very as like you know if you imagine like some sort of insane school principal who only did parent-teacher conferences with biological parents because you know because uh, pair, you know, because words have meaning, damn it, and you know, facts don't care about your feelings, and you know, the word parent has a biological definition, so he wouldn't do parent-teacher conferences with adoptive parents, right? We would think that this guy was a lunatic and a bigot, and we would be right, right? And so, and so, clearly, in a, in a sentence about like women's health, maybe, right? It makes sense to use the word women in purely biological ways. But, you know, in other contexts, you know, it's it might make it might actually make more sense to use it to refer to gender identity or gender expression. And that's a uh, and that's also and there's a normative element here. Right. Like which one is context appropriate could be a ethical question. Right. You know, it's like and and that just seems like, well, if you're not a complete asshole, then like in most contexts, you should refer to people how they want to be referred to. And that's totally um, and that's 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 totally like. You know, and but once you've broken it down like that, right? You know, you can you can see that what they're saying that the conclusion doesn't follow at all from the premises. So, like one of the things um, at the end of the book, I have the section called 12 Rules for Reasoning" about you know, obviously, it's a little jab at uh, at Jordan Peterson and the Twelve Rules for Life. And, and there are no lobsters for those who. Are, uh, <laughs> there, there are no, there are no lobsters. 
Yeah, you could not have that guy as a character in a novel. Like, it <laughs> It'd would be just, too on the nose, wouldn't it? Yeah, it, it would be, be like, way oh, come too on, on the nose. It was like, come on, man. Like, you just totally <laughs> pulled this guy out of, like, total caricature whack job. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tone it down, right? You know, you, you can't can even have write somebody. that. You can't even write that character. Uh, <laughs> So talk to let, let's let's go out on this. Let's go out on those twelve those twelve rules for reasoning. You're clearly a jab, but not only at Shapiro, who likes to give us rules and, and tactics to, to face down the the socialists. Uh, <laughs> I can do a better Shapiro. That was uninspired. Let me get pissed off on the B side. You guys stick around for that. Uh, but before we go over to the B side, lay lay that lay that out for us. Uh, give them give them some tasty nuggets to go home with, so that they can uh, obviously so they can own the libs and the in the right on on Twitter because that's why we're doing this right. It's, <laughs> It's all right, about right. you know extending our aggro, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's the gorilla no. mindset, Ben. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's the uh, um, you know being a communist podcast. It's the gorilla warfare mindset. Uh, <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. No. So uh, well, just to just to spoil the ending, the, the last one of those rules is slow the hell down, and that uh, and that summarizes a lot of the rest of them uh, because. Yeah. One of the, you know, so like one of the things that I say is something that I've already said, which is, um, which is try to rephrase an argument in your own words. So you can like try to get a sense of what the premises are, how they're supposed to relate to each other at the conclusion, uh, which again is, is the kind of thing that is just, you know, it, it's a, <laughs> this, uh, you know, Sorry, I'm still on the gorilla mindset, but, you know, this is a, uh, you know, but this is a very different mindset than the way that, like, social media sewers have, like, trained us all to yeah, approach argument. Totally, right? That, totally. like, instead of just, like, being pissed off and, like, spending three seconds trying to think of the most devastating way to express why you're so pissed off and then, you know, hitting, you know, enter, uh, then, uh, you know, that, like, actually, like, take your time with it, think carefully, think, okay, what is what is this person trying to say? You know, is there a different way we could phrase this argument? You know, would would that make it clearer? And you know, if you're interested, not just in you know making them feel bad, you know, uh, which you know might be your goal in some cases, but like if you're actually interested in the topic and you want to try to figure things out and reason carefully about it instead of just reducing them to a um, to a pile of uh, urine soil garments on the floor. Uh, then, uh, then you know, then trying to figure out exactly what the structure of the argument is, put it in your own words so you can think, okay, what would be a good objection to it? Do they have a good reply to that? Uh, is going to be really helpful. And one that's that's just kind of a um, uh, and another one is uh, don't mistake competing values for logical inconsistency, mm, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, th- right. this this is a big one, like. Yeah, that's a huge um, one. You know, like if, uh, you know, I mean, like just to just to pick kind of an obvious, simple example, you know, if if I say, um, you know, you know, you're talking about like the so earlier you were talking about the social media wars in like 2015, 2016 between like libs and the dirtbag left and all that stuff. And, you know, if if I'm on the uh, dirtbag side of the conflict and, you know, and I say, you know, man, Hillary Clinton is really awful. Right. You know, and I. I go on about how disgusted I am about her, you know, warmongering and, you know, uh, and history as a corporate shill. Uh, and then, you know, but then like the next year comes around and, and, and sadly she does win the nomination. And I say, well, I, I really think if you live in a swing state, you should probably vote for her. It's very easy to very dumb way to say, Oh, you're being inconsistent. 
right? You know, like I thought you said she was horrible. It's like, well, no, I'm not being inconsistent. I I, I have to weigh how I I mean, what's still true about how horrible she is, right? Against the fact that there is this tactically very important short-term goal that, you know, that would be very ill-served by Donald Trump winning the election. Yeah, yeah. So the the, the values versus, you know, um, the truth claims or, or you know, the, the uh, premises going in uh, is, is really important, I think, because I want to end on this one, which is that the more you understand, I think, the structure of argumentation, this book has really helped me do that. The more you can also do what what is really important, I think, if you're going to engage people politically, especially on social media, is to recognize when that's not actually what's happening. When actually what's happening is this person is just trying to say things that will hurt you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's all it is. It's just, I mean, it's it, at the point you recognize that Twitter is just literally a bunch of lonely and angry people projecting their self hatred onto others and trying to hurt people, say and do whatever they can just to hurt you. Uh, yeah. the, the more you'll kind of like be, be a lot more sane about it, but, but this, this, you kind of uh, glossed over, but the key, um, I think the key fallacy that you were sort of pointing to there was begging the question. Let's go out on that one because this one is so helpful. It's so helpful yeah. to think about kind of like disagreements on the left, wherein you say, you're a so-and-so, no, you're a so-and-so. <laughs> and it's like, well, if I agreed to the premise that you just put forward <laughs> and I, and I then made the claim that I just made, then yes, I would be a so-and-so, but I don't agree with the premise you just put forward. So, I, you know, I, the, 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 it doesn't follow. You're begging the question. Spell that out one for us. That As you, yeah, as you lament in the book, this is the, uh, an oft- uh, completely. I mean, people just have no idea what the hell it is. And I myself was guilty of this until fairly recently. So set, set our, set us straight. Yeah, sure. So begging the question, um, is the mistake we make in reasoning when we assume we smuggle into the premises, uh, the, the conclusion or something that's equivalent to it. I think the phrase goes back to like medieval scholastic debates when, you know, one side, you know, one side would like beg the other to grant, you know, some assumption, but it was obviously considered a big violation of the rules to beg the thing that's the very question, right, that you're uh, that you're arguing about. Uh, Will you is- submit to the fact that you're a Nazi, which which is the reason why you're arguing <laughs> that you don't agree with me about this particular oh my nuance God. about race and I, class? I, yeah, like, I, lo- I, I love that one that like this is just such a, you know, like. Whoever uh, whoever dug up like whoever did a deep dive into Wikipedia and uh, and found the word Strasserite and taught it to uh, the the left should be shot. Yeah, fuck uh, that that's, guy. Like yeah. that's like seriously like if you think that any and and none of this is to even endorse one side or the other of any of these stupid little arguments, but like if you think that any of the leftists you have beefs with on Twitter are literally Nazis, you've lost the plot. Right. Like, nobody, like, none of your enemies in DSA are Nazis, you know, like, that's not nobody you argue with about, you know, uh, reparations on Twitter as a Nazi. You know, just just calm down with that shit. I think slow the hell down, really. uh, Yeah. It's funny you mentioned calm down because beside that, beside that point, the slow the hell down point, I just wrote calm the fuck down, which is my favorite phrase on Twitter now. Everybody (laughs) just needs to calm the fuck down. Okay. Just calm down. All right. It's just not that serious. And in the part that is serious, you're completely missing. 
So yeah, yeah, what are no, we doing? Absolutely. What are we doing here? So yeah, so, we're begging the question. Talk to us about that because yeah, so the more I realize is, and recognize that in action, in 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 the real time, in on in the bat on the battlefield, Ben, on the battlefield, yeah, of Twitter, yeah, 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 yeah. So everybody, so this is a uh, this is a phrase that um, is almost always misused by like media pundits uh, who use it to mean raise the question. Uh, it's the same thing as like ad hom, whichever, you know, ad hominem, which everybody uses to mean like say something mean rather than saying something, you know, using something negative but irrelevant as if it were, as if it undermined what the speaker was saying, right? Which is actually ad hominem. Begging the question is uh, assuming the very thing that you should be trying to prove. And I know that like logic nerds can be like way, way too insistent on everybody correctly using the phrase begging the question, but like it only, begs the question raises the question you know raises only has one more syllable and like you know i'm not gonna get you know i I don't think we're gonna get everybody to use the phrase petito principi which is like the latin version of beg the question so let's just go with begs you know let's let's really try to get people to correctly use begs the question which is you know what's going on you know these are technically valid arguments right a valid argument this is by the way uh, we're just, we're just talking about being an asshole on Twitter. And one day when I was being an asshole on Twitter, uh, <laughs> uh, Stefan Molyneux blocked me for pointing out that he, in his version of argument of, in his book about arguments, he got this wrong, um, that a valid argument is an argument where the, uh, conclusion falls from the premises. A sound argument is an argument where the conclusion falls from the premises and the premises are true. This is something you'd learn on like the first day of a logic class. And he wrote a book about arguments where he got it wrong, which, you know, it's like, it's like writing a book about statistics where you, where you uh, reverse what correlation means, what causation means. <laughs> um, it, it would be but, embarrassing to anyone who, who had the ability to feel shame. Which yes, he does exactly. Not, so. Exactly. But like a question begging argument is a valid argument. The conclusion falls from the premise because they're the same. It's just not a good argument because the point of a good argument is to give people who don't already agree with you a reason to start agreeing with you. Uh, so, for example, right, if uh, if somebody who is, uh, who's anti-abortion says that I'm against, you know, abortion is wrong because abortion is murder and murder is wrong, well, okay, uh, that's all, you know, that's like the conclusion falls to the premises. The problem is the first conclusion is just, the first premise is just the conclusion in disguise, right? You know, that what what murder means is wrong killing. That's why you can't murder somebody in self-defense, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? So uh, the, uh, the concept of murder already has wrongness baked into it. And so since what the argument is about is about whether murder is wrong, if you start your argument uh, – sorry, what the, it's, that's not what the argument's about. The argument is about whether abortion is, is wrong. So if you, if you help yourself to the assumption that abortion uh, is wrong, then you haven't given anybody who doesn't already agree with you a reason to start agreeing with you. And to be fair, this is, you know, this is also uh, – you know, I'm enough of a, you know, of a soft and squishy Menshevik to be against the death penalty. But, you know, like, I often see people doing the same thing there. Well, they say the death penalty is wrong because it's murder. Well, it's only murder if it's wrong, right? You know, so, uh, so this is, this is a very, um, and this is, uh, and this is really worth, like, attending to because, you know, because if, if this is something that all of your arguments, or like maybe a more significant version of it might be, uh, the very common libertarian argument, that uh, redistribution is wrong, 
uh, because it violates the non-aggression principle that says that you shouldn't initiate force against other people or their property. And of course, you think, well, this is the point that Matt Brunig always makes. You say, well, all right, what do you mean their property? Because does that just mean whatever property they currently happen to be in possession of? That that seems like it can't be it, because if that's what it meant, then you couldn't recover stolen property, for example. You know, um, does it mean whatever property, like, is legally yours now? That can't be it either, because then, like, if a tyrannical regime takes some piece of property from you, you'd be violating the non-aggression principle if you took it back. So what's got to mean is the property that's morally rightfully yours. But of course, the whole the whole argument between a libertarian and anybody who believes in redistribution is about which property is more like morally should go where. So if you say redistribution is wrong because uh, it you know because you're uh, violating the non-aggression principle, what you're essentially saying is you know giving taking X's property and giving it to Y is wrong because that property is rightfully X's. But of course, that's the that's the whole issue, right? Like the whole debate is a debate about whether, you know, morally uh, it would be better for that property to be in X's hands or Y's hands. And so you, you have given a reason. And as you suggest, I think that lots of kind of um, left-wing Twitter spats have this forum that like if you, that, you know, that if you're, um, that if you accept that some position is really on like, you know, um, is really wrong or racist or sexist or, you know, whatever, then sure, somebody who somebody who's aggressively advocated it, that might give us a reason to think that they were one of these things. But if you're just starting from that position, then you haven't given anybody a good reason to think that that position actually is horribly racist or sexist or anything else. Right. So he's, I mean, the, the first step to getting out of this, this, uh, you know, this quagmire, this, this shit show of Twitter and social media debates is to recognize what you are and aren't doing. Um, and, and if, when you go about things that way, you're not debating really, you're not, that's not what you're doing. You're doing something else. And that's fine. If you want to do that instead, like do that, but you're, you're certainly not making any kind of real attempt. And it's, you know, this is when like, this is bad faith. This is good faith. No, this is bad faith. No, you're dishonest. No, you're, and it's just, it, it, it just spirals into the point where it's like, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? Yeah. You know, your book spells all this stuff out in, in great detail. People should definitely pick this up. We're going to take it over to the B side. Now, if you're not a patron, you're going to miss out on the B side. Why aren't you a patron? I'm going to, we're going to give you an argument as to why you should be one. Uh, and <laughs> the real killer cliffhanger here. What, what do Ayn Rand and Leon Trotsky have in common? Yeah. Oh, big, big teaser cliffhanger there. They got a lot more in common than you might think. Ben Burgess, we're going to spell that out for everybody on the B side. Thanks for joining us, Ben. All right. Thank you. And that concludes today's A side with Ben Burgess. Thanks again to Ben for joining us. Everybody should catch him on the B side coming up. Tomorrow, that's going to be dropped on Friday for patrons of the Dead Punnett Society. And as I mentioned during the break, Dead Punnett Society is funded entirely by the generosity of our patrons. We cannot do this without their support. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits if you liked what you heard today. If you listen, you benefit from Dead Pundits on a daily, a weekly, or a monthly basis. We ask you to open up your pockets and we remind you that solidarity is indeed a verb. And that we socialist media producers are 
utterly and desperately dependent on you in order to keep doing this, in order to spread these ideas into the mainstream. And just as a reminder for the cheap seats out there, Dead Pundit Society podcast and DPS Media is a unapologetic democratic socialist media outlet looking to spread these ideas into the mainstream, whether it be via our podcast, via our website at deadpundits.com, or the new YouTube channel. People should check that out. We've got weekly videos. The series is called Democratic Socialism 101. And we're hoping to reach the young and uninitiated out there on YouTube and turn them in a leftward principled democratic socialist direction before the alt-right and the libertarians can get their grimy little hands on them. So if you want to support that, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and you'll get access to the B-side, which drops tomorrow. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see patrons tomorrow. To the rest of you, same time, same place, next week. Oh, this new crazy mother...